Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast with me, Jay Elwes, and this week we bring you politics. We talk an awful lot, and I know on this podcast I talk an awful lot, about the Tory party being split over Brexit, and it certainly is. But I think actually the question of austerity speaks to us as fundamental a question as to what the Tory party's for as anything. And culture. What is so remarkable about it, I've been twice and I think I'm going to have to go back again, is that all the cliches that uh, one has about uh, Islamic art are sort of exploded. And a little later on in this broadcast, we will hear from Kevin Maguire of the Daily Mirror, who wrote a piece for our October issue on John McDonnell the Shadow Chancellor. He's got a reputation as a hard-left socialist, which isn't surprising, perhaps, as he once famously handed George Osborne a copy of Mao's Little Red Book across the dispatch box during a Commons debate. But showmanship aside, when you get down to it, who is John McDonnell? It's rather like when you want to talk about the early Catholicism of his life. He'll let you go so far and give you so much, and then he will, then he will stop. Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but first I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect Podcast regulars Samir Rahim, our culture editor, and also Alex Dean, who's Prospect's politics correspondent. And Alex, first over to you. Um, we're going to be hearing about the Labour Shadow Chancellor later in this broadcast, uh, and it's budget time, um, and the government's spending plans will become open to view. Um, and uh, we're speaking now before all those details are known, of course. But Alex, you see the prospect of one change uh, in particular. Yeah, I mean, there's been a few things trailed. Um, I'd be very surprised if, if there wasn't some sticking plaster on universal credit, um, which at the very least needs more money and arguably needs <laughs> you know, a complete overhaul. Um, we've seen some stuff on uh, fuel duty freezes. There's obviously the 20 billion for the NHS and some money will have to be found uh, to pay for that. I think actually though, the most important thing away from these kind of individual announcements and looking at the overall picture is that we talk an awful lot and I know on this podcast I talk an awful lot about the Tory party being split over Brexit and it certainly is but I think actually the question of austerity uh, speaks to us as fundamental a, a question as to what the Tory party's for as anything. And actually, 
you know, it's one one half of the MPs are in one camp and the other in another camp, and they, they can't work out which way to go, whether they want to be a kind of lean state, um, you know, Friedman-style, super-austerian, uh, prudent-with-the-public-finances kind of party, or whether it's time to loosen the purse strings and be a bit more, I don't want to say compassionate, but, but you know, head in that direction. And I just don't think they know. It's funny, isn't it, that that kind of sound-money, conservative worldview... Uh, it, it it's now oddly enough associated with George Osborne, who simultaneously represents the kind of woolly liberal metropolitan elite wing of the Conservative Party. It's weird, isn't it? All these kind of recast <laughs> political dividing lines and fault lines. Um, some of the Brexiteers. I was speaking to Jacob Rees-Mogg, and he was telling me that he thinks austerity has now gone far enough. And he said he supported it at the start. And um, this was on the phone a couple of weeks ago. He told me he supported it to begin with, and then he he said it was interesting. At the start, there were people who he didn't think were sensible who were saying that austerity had gone far enough. The tipping over moment for him was when people who he did think were sensible, who had been coming to his constituency office and he'd been agreeing with them, <laughs> uh, you know, and other, on other issues, um, when they started saying they thought it had gone too far um he went home and thought about it and, and kind of spoke to me a few days after that and said he had changed his mind it's now um you know we, we've kind of hit the limits of of how much you can squeeze one way of looking at electoral cycles is you have labor they spend money you know, services improve and then they spend too much money and then people feel like there needs to be a retrenchment and they throw them out and they get the conservatives in who cut things back cut things back cut things back a bit more and then people think well maybe we need some more money for services and they vote in Labour again and in that cycle we're pretty much on course now for a sort of kick the Tories out get Labour back in certainly the, the country seems a bit tired of and the lack of money that seems to be around people see it biting councils failing and and all the rest of it but there's two complicating factors one is then you've got Jeremy Corbyn Labour Party who, who still despite the government's difficulties hasn't been able to sort of go further up in the polls, and your own area of expertise, Brexit. So they seem to be sort of interfering with that cycle, as it were. So opposition to austerity seems to be coming from within the Tories as much as from, from Labour. Yeah, there's, they've been in power long enough now that Tory MPs are having to play the Labour role in, in the kind of scene that you just described, um, of kind of pushing back against it after the retrenchment just just the country starts to feel like it's too much. On Brexit, again, that that that's, uh, poses massive challenges for any ending of austerity because that's going to uh, expose the public finances to real headwinds. Uh, it's just one extra thing I'd say. This stuff gets announced in the budget and it's it's kind of intuitive to think of it happening when it's announced, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. So the stuff, the headline gets, see the headline, all oh, right, that's what's happened now. But often this stuff is announced years in advance. So there's still some Osborne era cuts yet to come in. <laughs> there's, there's pre-programmed austerity. So so there's all kinds of, you know, health warnings that you apply to the budget. And you need to look for not just is that spending ring, ring fenced in, uh, you know, raw cash terms, but is it ring fenced in real terms and, and, and you know, with the population growing? Is it, is it ring fenced in that way to take account of that? Um, and I think we all look out for that sort of thing. But the last thing to look out for is the fact that even if no new cuts are made, there's already cuts preloaded into the system. So you'd have to undo, <laughs> undo the stuff that's already stacked in that direction. Where does Theresa May uh, stand? I mean, you mentioned that half the Conservative Party is now kind of pro-austerity or in favour of it or in favour of, you know, the residual 
policies that are still there. The other half doesn't like it so much. Where's the PM? Yeah, I think it's a weird thing because the Tory party is split down the middle on, on the question of whether austerity is a good thing and whether we've had enough of it or not. And I also think individual Tory MPs are split down the middle on it. So the party's confused and the individuals making up the party are confused. The way I see the kind of landscape of the cabinet is that Hammond is an old-fashioned austerian, really. Uh, and, and I guess you'd expect that from a Tory chancellor. I guess he's always going to be um, kind of careful with the purse strings. May, I think, is more on the it's time to get spending side. Brilliant. Thanks, Alex. Uh, and now, Samir, over to you. You have been to the British Museum recently to see a new exhibition. Um, what have you found? Yes, I've been spending a little bit of time at the British Museum where they've just opened two new permanent collection rooms right at the centre of the museum, um, which are dealing with um, objects from the Islamic world. Um Listeners may know that the John Addis Gallery, which was in the little corner uh, of the British Museum, had uh, a lot of quite interesting objects, but it was a bit dusty and a bit old. And now they have uh, revamped it. I think they've increased the size by about two thirds and it's been totally re reworked. Um, They've introduced some windows into the gallery and put these wonderful sort of filigreed walnut arabesque uh, uh, windows with, with light streaming through. And they, what is so remarkable about it, I've been twice and I think I'm going to have to go back again uh, before I maybe write something for, for the magazine about it, is that all the cliches that uh, one has about uh, Islamic art and what it is, um, or objects in the Islamic world rather, they, they avoid the term Islamic art, um, are sort of exploded. So the idea that, well, it's just calligraphy. That's not true at all. There is some calligraphy and very, very beautiful it is um, as well. Um, but there's also a lot of figurative images. There's figures presented in manuscripts. There's figures presented on uh, pottery. There are carved birds. There's all sorts of figurative imagery. In fact, I think maybe in almost half the collection or something like that seems to have um, a figure of either a person or an animal on it. So second cliche is that, um, well, when Islam came in the 7th century, there was a, a there was a clean break between uh, what came before and what came after. By the way, these cliches are cliches um, not only of Orientalist art criticism, they're cliches that are also um, within sort of Islamic discussions of what the uh, Muslims generally think of as being their tradition. Again, at the beginning of this uh one of the rooms, you have sort of Sassanian uh, images of winged horses from sort of the pre, uh, pre-Islamic pre era, um, images which are then picked up almost exactly uh, and used in the story of the Prophet's winged journey to heaven on his on his horse, uh, Barak. So there's sort of continuities, um, as one would expect, really. So yeah, so there's some fascinating objects in there as well. Um, it has a few nods to what's going on in the current world. Um, there's a very interesting and moving cabinet, which is called From Mosul to Raqqa, and it talks about the uh, Mosul was uh, well known for its metalwork. And there's three enormous candles there, which um, were actually made uh, for an Armenian church um, in Mosul, um, but were, were made by uh, Arab Muslim um, designers. Samir, you used that phrase, the Islamic world. Could you just talk a bit about um, the extent to which all this is is about religion and the extent to which it's it's about kind of the, the wider community? Yeah, you've picked up on exactly the hot-button academic issue 
um, that is under discussion. So when we talk about Christian art, we generally talk about art with a religious connotation, crosses, icons and all the rest of it. When people talk about Islamic art, there's a bit more of... um, latitude in the term. It encompasses all sorts of different things, things which are specifically religious, um, but also things that are just made by people who happen to be Muslims. And also, as we see in this exhibition, objects like a, a, a flask made for a Christian with an gr- engraving of Abraham about to kill Isaac, not made by Muslims at all. So they've gone with the Islamic world as a sort of generalised term and have been absolutely free and easy with that definition. And what's interesting is they've gone to Africa, um, which is a place often ignored in the history of uh, uh, objects in the Islamic world. And they've also gone for everyday objects, which I found quite fascinating as well. So there's a lot of sort of ethnographic material as well, it being the British Museum. One in particular, they have um, a topi or uh, a kind of hat which is worn in Zanzibar. Um, and it's very like the hat that uh, my father, who was from Zanzibar, often used to wear. So it was quite an odd experience seeing an almost exact replica of that hat sitting in the British Museum. The The idea is that it's not just high art objects. Um, it's not just uh, beautiful vases or wonderful um, glasswork. There's plenty of that as well. It's talking about the sort of everyday experience of people living up until the present day um, um, in, in the Muslim world. And also it has some artists, some really interesting Muslim artists who are using the tradition of the past and developing their own narratives. One in particular I might mention, Raid Yassin's uh, porcelain vase, which looks like a sort of Chinese stroke, sort of East Asian traditional uh, blue and white vase but it's inscribed or painted with um, scenes from the Lebanese civil war giving a sort of different tinge to um, a traditional object. Samir fantastic thank you very much indeed thanks also Alex and now as promised we go over to uh, this week's main interview our very own Steve Bloomfield speaking to Kevin Maguire about the life and times of Labour's shadow chancellor John McDonnell. Maguire, welcome to Prospect. Lovely to be here. Let's start by talking about John McDonnell's reputation before he became Shadow Chancellor, uh, because he was part of this double act with Corbyn, wasn't he, for a, a long time on the back benches? Absolutely. In, in fact, John McDonnell uh, tells a joke about how he said to his wife, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's my uh, best friend in politics. And she says, well, no, he's your only friend in <laughs> politics. Because John McDonnell, he had a, a very negative reputation. He was considered to be thuggy, uh, would stab you in the back, disloyal, inveterate plotter, couldn't be trusted. It wasn't entirely fair, but there was some evidence uh, of, it, of it too, because he's one of those politicians, he describes himself as a bureaucrat. Uh, meaning, in a good sense of a bureaucrat, he gets things done. So whenever there was a campaign, uh, whenever there was a cause, Jeremy Corbyn would tip along, he'd be associated with it, he'd give a lot of support, he'd speak and so on. But it would be John McDonnell who would do the planning. He would be uh, the organising. He'd make sure the room was booked. Uh, he'd make sure there weren't too many chairs in it so people could come in, fill the chairs that were available. And then if they had to fill, get extra chairs later on, it looked like the cause was growing in popularity. Uh, and I think that's why he got that uh, that image. And not, as I say, not entirely without foundation, but it wasn't uh, totally fair either. 
And is it, but is it fair to say that while at the moment we now see Corbyn as number one and McDonnell as number two, it wasn't always the case in their relationship? No, I think that's right. I think it's flipped. Uh, and it was McDonnell who was the senior figure, the one who would make the decisions and would lead. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn was his assistant, if you if if you like. But, but uh, the sorcerer and the apprentice. Well, the apprentice has now got the sorcerer's job, and the the sorcerer's not quite the apprentice, but uh, he is the he's the effective deputy of the Labour Party. Uh, and as shadow chancellor, he's hugely influential. But it is Corbyn with that number one. Uh, job and uh, he seems to have adapted to it quite well although I'm told he sits opposite Jeremy Corbyn in shadow cabinet meetings and other members of the shadow cabinet will say occasionally he will see Jeremy Corbyn get himself in a bit of a tangle uh, on an issue and it will be McDonnell that will come in to try and sort it out and uh, other times you see this look that they call the it should have been me look from uh, from John McDonnell uh, looking looking across thinking you know I could have done that uh, that role more effectively but I I think there's a little self-awareness now around John McDonnell that Jeremy Corbyn manages to get an appeal uh, because he has that kind of uh, softer way of doing politics that that gets him to to areas that John McDonnell himself couldn't and taking the decisions and sometimes hard decisions, uh, you, you you make enemies along the road. When uh, Corbyn ran in 2015, there was a lot of talk that, well, it was it was Jeremy's turn. You know, John McDonnell had tried, uh, Diane Abbott had tried. Um, and so it was, you know, someone from the campaign had to do it. So Jeremy was like, OK, fine, it has to be me. Do you think there was also, though, uh, a realisation from McDonnell that actually McDonnell was more of an abrasive character and was was less likely to a get the 35 MPs he needed to get onto the ballot and b wouldn't be quite as good as Jeremy Corbyn at, at winning over the electorate. I think there's something in that he'd tried twice to get on the ballot and failed uh, and also of course he'd had his he's had his heart attack plays it down now but it was said to be pretty serious at the at the time he says he has one stent in inserted but I, I suspect he was feeling a bit of his a bit of his age and uh, as he tells it at the meeting he says well I've done it before I've had my my try Diane had a try we need somebody else Jeremy I suppose it's your turn you you haven't and they they never really thought he would get on the ballot paper uh, but they thought they'd get a couple of weeks of publicity, make their case, the political argument for their brand of, uh, of Labour socialism, uh, heavy state involvement, much greater regulation, very much stronger workers' rights, public ownership. They, they thought they'd get a few weeks of doing that, but they never thought they would get him on the, on the ballot paper. I think one of the most interesting parts of the profile you wrote for us was the bits that were looking back into McDonald's family life, how he started, and his his road before politics. Can you just talk a little bit about where he grew up and and, and what his uh, you know his early years were like? Yeah, I, I always think it's important to look at politicians and where they you know where they've come from to, to understand where they are now and where they might go in the in the future. And he came from a, a pretty poor uh, background in Liverpool. His father had been uh, in the army, was working on the docks. Uh, the work dried up, so they moved, the family moved Lock, Stock and Barrel to Great Yarmouth, where his, his mother was from. Uh, he went to school uh, and he was sent uh, to, to train as a priest in a, 
you know, very early, very early age in a, in a in a school which he clearly didn't enjoy, as he's he's relatively open about it, although a little guarded. But he didn't enjoy it, and I suspect it was a very brutal regime. Um, and he talks about that, but doesn't discuss. I like to discuss whether he was beaten and so on, but I suspect he was at that uh, at that school. But he didn't enjoy. It. He got out. Went to school, didn't do very well in his uh, then O levels, the GCSEs of the of the time. Not least because he was working, and he, he worked in pubs. He was a bingo caller. He worked in a bird's eye factory, and he left and went back up to the to the northwest, and where he, he did some pretty heavy manual jobs, working in a TV factory, uh, a bed factory, and so on. Working and a lot of these were overnight as well. They, they were absolutely. So he was doing shifts. So. He, you could see he had a work ethic from uh, early on, and I think he carries that uh, work ethic into his politics now. A few people, as Tom Watson, the uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party, in many ways a political opponent within uh, Labour in the shadow cabinet of John McDonald, will will admit, and he, with a you know, hint of admiration, that McDonald's a stakanovite. It was while he was doing these jobs that he he went back to college, got his A levels, and then the family moved south. And he, he did a sandwich degree while he was a part-time um, father, as it were, in a in a home. This was children. one. Of the, this was one of the most fascinating parts of it. T- tell us a bit about the the role that him and his wife played, his then wife played, in this care home. Yeah, it was a care home for about ten kids, uh, all from difficult backgrounds, split families. Some, some had been abused, and at the time, the way it was run in in Hillingdon is the, the kids would go in would go into these homes, and his wife was the full time mother, and he was the part time father uh, while he was studying for his uh, his degree at Brunel University, and he he threw himself into it. There's no question he f- he did that, and uh, would take the kids to see his mother, take them around the country, uh, and I think he he keeps in touch with them. Uh, he's got a boat moored up in East Anglia, and when he goes up, he, he sees one of them there. Um, very sadly, he w- went to the funeral of one last year who'd uh, who'd taken their own uh, their own life, and he he'll talk about it. And again, it's it's rather like when you want to talk about the early Catholicism of his life. He, he'll let you go so far and give you so much, and then he will then he will stop and. Certainly on the question of the kids, he, he says, I've got to protect their privacy because I, I would love to go with him uh, and meet some of these kids and uh, hear their conversations and get their point of view as, as well as hearing his. But maybe he will one day and I'd, I'd quite like him to lift that curtain a little more. Again, there's this real difference, isn't there, between him and Jeremy Corbyn in that, you know, Corbyn has, has learned all of this and McDonnell has lived all of this. Yeah, he was kind of yes. He was born. He was born into it uh, in a way, and he, you know, he's grafted. He's had times when he's not had a, a lot of money. He never claims, uh, you know, his his family life. He'll you'll say where they lived in in Liverpool. It was very poor, as essentially a tenement. But you'll say, look, we had enough money. We didn't go hungry. He doesn't. You don't hear the violins uh, playing in the background when he talks about it. He doesn't. In, he doesn't invent or embellish. The poverty of the of the past, and he doesn't glory in it. Uh, he's he's not really proud of it. You you don't get that, you don't get that impression from him. It's just matter of factly. This was my life. Uh, you know, I experienced that. But he does say you never forget. Yeah, uh, and I think that's quite important with him. Some some people do forget their uh, previous lives, and they move, they move a long way from him. I think it's still. With him, and maybe, maybe it sometimes it gives him that little little sense of not quite belonging. 
sometimes that sense of insecurity. But he's, I, he's formidably intelligent when you speak to him. And I guess also it then means that, you know, when there are discussions about the level of the minimum wage or about zero hours contracts or about what a certain change to the welfare system might mean for an individual, he understands you know, inside him what that means and, and the difference that can yeah, make. Yeah, it's, it's not theoretical. It's real. It's practical. Uh, Gordon Brown was uh, was very hot on, on poverty. It was a crusade for him. Uh, Gordon Brown wanted to alleviate poverty and help people in life. But you would feel with, with Gordon, it was always looking a bit from the outside. Uh, ever from the, uh, being the son of the man, so he'd come across uh, people who were a lot uh, a lot less fortunate than, than him, and he, and he wanted to help. With John McDonnell, the I think the passion is even greater, and there's a feeling of belonging, and just knowing what they're what they're enduring. Whether whether you're talking about poor housing, or whether you're talking about a lack of money, or as you say, the insecurity at work. He's been there. He's gone away from it. He's uh, uh, quite a few years, if not decades, from it. But he remembers it and feels it, and it is part of him. Let's talk about his politics. How left-wing is he? And, and, and is he actually not quite as left-wing as he might say? Yeah, well, I think he... It's John Landsman, who uh, head of Momentum, who said he's both more ideological and practical than Jeremy Corbyn. And I think that's, I think that's very true. When he was at the TUC, uh, John McDonnell set up a, a book club. It was a weekly book club, and they studied Das Kapital, every week uh, uh, he is certainly all cites Marx as one of his great uh, influences I think he is I think he is ideologically very left uh, but it is interesting that he will compromise he probably hates that uh, word being used but he will compromise to become practical and what he thinks he can he can sell to the electorate and uh, the last Labour uh, manifesto 2017 I went to the Institute of Fiscal Studies briefing on the document, which said both the tax increases were the highest in the post-war period. The increase in public spending was also the highest in the post-war period. But it would have just taken Britain on the taxation level and public spending level up to the equivalent of Canada. So he'd compromised clearly quite there. And uh, if you go back to the probably the SDP manifesto of 1983, it would have been to the left of the Labour manifesto in, in 2017. So you can see that, uh, yes, he is very left and will always push in that direction. But he is not somebody who will bang his head against a, a brick wall just for ideological reasons. Well, I mean, as recently as four or five years ago, he was talking about a, a top tax rate of 60%. And yeah. he's not talking about that now. No, he's not. He's, he's gone from that. And at the Labour Party conference, in a in a speech which electrified the, the party faithful, uh, quite how it went round down with the rest of the country is a, you know, is, a, is another debate, but it electrified the party faithful. It was very much a Red John socialism speech, and he was proposing workers on boards and uh, employees, only 10% of the shares. And to some extent, he's... He's backed off that a bit uh, since. In an interview with the FT, he was 
uh, if he thinks he's going to get an adverse reaction, he's he's not somebody who won't change. He'll he probably try and deny you turns, but he will he will he will, he will swerve when necessary. And workers on boards is something that Angela Merkel is comfortable with, so it's it's not it's not the most left wing policy in the world. And Theresa May uh, two years ago was uh, supposedly in uh, in favour. No, it's a look. It's 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 mainstream social democracy or. German case, you could say Christian democracy, but it's if you believe in a social contract, social partnership in a country, workers on board is is, is quite understandable and hardly revolutionary. How transformative do you think he could be as chancellor? I think he, I think potentially very. It would depend on the circumstances in which. Labour are in power if they if they get power and what your coalition is, what your majority is, because there's no doubt he's got some opposition within the within the Labour Party itself and whatever the crisis is, because if if Labour do get into power, it's going to have to deal with either Brexit actually happening or the aftermath of that. Uh, that is going to limit his his room for manoeuvre because there's no doubt even Boris Johnson with his Nike tick accepts the economy would go down I- in the early period. So that could be very, very difficult. do you difficult. think they've done enough thinking on that? Because it, it, one of the things that was striking, actually at both party conferences, but even at, particularly at Labour's, was there was, everyone was talking about Brexit, but no one was talking about the impact that Brexit was going to have. So you know, they rolled out an interesting new childcare policy, but if we're in recession post Brexit, bye bye childcare policy. No, I think Brexit is the huge, huge, huge elephant in the room they try and talk around, uh, and the impact of it will certainly be negative in the short term. Whatever happens in the long future, uh, long term, I'm personally, I'm, a, I'm very skeptical. Be any benefits uh, long term, uh, but in the short term, it'll be huge. And no, he, he kind of likes to look the other way it's it's probably taken two percent off economic growth already since 2016 Uh, you begin to disrupt your trading and economic relationships with your nearest neighbors you do most of your trade with that's certainly gonna gonna give you a hit um trade deals elsewhere around the world if they're if they're available are going to be tricky to negotiate no i think i think it's almost looking the other way because labor is haunted by the fact that yes two-thirds of of Labour voters backed Remain, but two-thirds of Labour seats were leave. And there's almost a paralysis at the top of the of the Labour Party. I think I think he, like Jeremy Corbyn, would just like it all to go away and he keeps arguing, let's have another general election rather than another referendum. Well may not get both may not get both or either, but uh it's a no, I think I think it is real it's a it's a dilemma for 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 him and Jeremy Corbyn, and they they could put themselves, I I would argue they could put themselves at the head of the campaign for another referendum with a very good economic and democratic argument for it. But they are so reluctant to do it; it's very hard to see it. And Euroscepticism runs deep mm. in both of them. It's a kind of a, it's it's a Benite uh, Euroscepticism with them. You talked about um, his. It could have been me. Or I, I could be doing this better. Uh, looking cabinet, do you think you know? Heart attack aside, he still has at the back of his mind a little bit of like, well, look, if Jeremy steps down, there'll be a vacancy. I know maybe it should be a woman leader next time, but maybe I should throw my hat in the ring. 
I think you'd just find most of the shadow cabinet and many Labour MPs think he harbours those ambitions should the vacancy occur and Jeremy Corbyn falls under the proverbial bus that John McDonnell's hat would be in the ring. He he quite correctly uh, doesn't want any speculation around that or or every manoeuvre and policy initiative and suggestion will be seen as a leadership bid and an attempt to undermine Corbyn and uh, enhance himself. So he quite rightly says the next Labour leader should be a woman. Uh, I think after 118 years, it's not in Labour's uh, favour that it's always asked the question, who's the best leader and picked a man, although Harriet Harman and Margaret Becker were acting leaders. And he certainly favours Rebecca Long-Bailey, the shadow business secretary himself. But I, I, I just cannot believe he doesn't sometimes think if the vacancy occurred, it could be me. He might have a reasonable chance at the moment. Just going back to the way he's viewed, we talked at the start about his reputation, you said, you know, a bit thuggish, um, not the, not perhaps the having the, the widest uh, well of support within the Labour Party. Do you think that's changed now? Do you think we're seeing a different John McDonnell or people have a different view of John McDonnell now than they might have had three or four years ago? I think both are true. I think he's changed his style and he's far more cooperative and reaches out. People he would have at one time in the Parliamentary Labour Party would have shunned and denounced. He he speaks to, he does it also with trade unions. It was very noticeable uh, when he addressed the TUC in Manchester. The only trade union general secretary he singled out for a mention was Dave Prentice. And there's a lot of bad blood between John McDonnell and Dave Prentice because McDonnell once backed an opponent uh, against him, actually put forward, he endorsed the opponent, was on leaflets and so on. And I thought that was a, a sign of reaching out to, to Dave Prentice. But if you, if you speak to MPs, and they're not, not the Corbynista MPs, not that small group, what impresses them is McDonnell gets things done. And he will make those decisions. And he demonstrated in the summer over anti-Semitism, where he saw much earlier than the leader's office that Labour had to adopt all the examples in the international uh, definition of anti-Semitism. He was there. It was a blazing row in Smith Square at a meeting uh, of the of the NEC. It was an away day. And... He, John McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn and a few um, Corbyn's advisors went up to the top floor, broke away and there was a row because he was saying, look, we've got to clear this up. We've got to do it. And he's somebody who wants to get rid of roadblocks on the what he sees as the you know, the, the the road to, to Downing Street. And that is winning him, uh, winning him a renewed respect from people who yep, are still a little suspicious of him. There's not uh, total trust there. But they can see that uh, he will get decisions made. Kevin Maguire, thank you very much. Thank you. Steve Bloomfield there talking to Kevin Maguire. And to read that piece, visit our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk, where you can find all sorts of great stuff on domestic politics, global affairs, as well as arts, culture, science, and lots more. I'm Jay Elwes. My thanks to Samir Rahim and also to Alex Dean here in the studio. And the November edition of Prospect is in the shops now, so be sure you get a copy. This month's cover story is all about London, the old smoke. It gets more than its fair share of Britain's economic upside. But what can we do about that? Can we do anything at all? Well, buy a copy and you find out. 
So thanks so much for listening and please go to iTunes where you can rate and review this podcast and it really helps other listeners to find us. So be sure again to join us next week for the Prospect Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.